This is Coda Radio, episode 432 for September 20th, 2021. Hello there, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business, the software development, and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a Cloud Guru, the leader in learning for cloud Linux and other modern tech skills. They have hundreds of certification courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Free cloud sandboxes where you can develop your own skills and more, all at a cloudguru.com. Right now, everyone can go learn. Get in on it, cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hey, I'm happy to be on The Blaze. Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to our uh, new exclusive uh, right wing streaming service where uh, we unintentionally upset people. Can, can we call it the no spin zone or is, is, is Papa Bear O'Reilly going to sue the shit out of us? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, he's still going. Is he really? You know, that old, that old, that old coot is still, he's got like his, he's got, he, he talked some YouTuber into helping him out with some setup and, the uh the, the production quality, like the lighting and the cameras are not It's gotta be bad. Yeah, they're not they're not good. Well, it's weird because like Glenn Beck faced the same problem, but he's like, yo, I got my whole network now. I'm good. I feel like Bill O'Reilly is just like a little too old. I hate to say it, but it is wild how many different streaming platforms and services and etc. are out there today. Like I was thinking about this last night as we were we were watching uh, a Star Trek Lower Decks with the kids. Nice. And, you know, that's a CB, CBS All Access show. Ugh, yes. And we're sitting there watching it, and we can just pull this up whenever we want it. There's no commercials. There's no, like, waiting around until Thursday night when it airs, and then we, you know, or or, like, when I was a kid, if I wanted to see a cartoon, I'd have to watch it Saturday morning. That was when I was going to watch cartoons. Like, there's, they don't have to do any of that now. I literally had this conversation with my son and he looked at me in a state of, I can only describe it as confounded horror <laughs> that there was a time when one could not just simply watch whatever, you know, insert your kid's favorite cartoon here. Right. Right. At on demand. He's like, well, but dad, Netflix. I'm like, okay, there was no Netflix. Brace yourself for this. There was no YouTube either. <laughs> you know, like he is not allowed on YouTube, but yes, <laughs> good call. But, you know, it's a funny reaction, like, when, I'm at, when I stay in a hotel room with the kids, and the TV comes on, and we're watching something, and then it breaks for commercial, and the kids are just like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I've also had to have the conversation explaining the concept of a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. But uh, I enjoy it. We love our sponsors. That's true. And I just started watching the, the Ted Lasso, because everybody's been going on about the Ted Lasso. Oh, how is it? I haven't seen it yet. <sighs> good is it really so frustratingly good yes I, I really don't want to pay for apple tv plus i know because you know it's it's getting out of hand and i don't need another damn show yeah but like i have to pay for picard because the world hates me which is i think is that the cbs one too yeah yeah i pay for peacock because i must have been drunk and just paid for peacock i, don't know. <laughs> I wanted i wanted all of the law and order apparently right. I, I honestly don't know why i have peacock when i have hulu and i pay for like the super cadillac hulu because i like soccer and apparently if you're in the u.s you need to pay more money to like soccer oh geez then you'd really like the ted lasso show he's a soccer coach right isn't that the whole that's why i resisted it because it was sports yeah yeah yep well, if you ever notice, I'm a little wild on Twitter on Saturdays talking about how much Manchester United sucks because it's all about Chelsea. <sighs> I'll leave it there. Jeez. Sports ball. Man, sports, huh? Mm. 
gets mm. me so riled up. <laughs> oh, I, I know. Chris is like, let me tell you something. Linux Mint is going to win the NHL Stanley Cup. <laughs> Man, I'd love, I'd love to see that. And they're going to pitch a perfect game while dunking on Shaq. Boom. I'm just waiting for uh, NASCAR, a NASCAR car to come racing by with a Linux logo on there, like a distro logo. You know what? I'm going to throw it down here. System 76, it's time to get into the NASCAR game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they seem like big NASCAR folks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, they definitely do. <laughs> you want to know something adorable? This is the last thing I'll say about my kids. But, uh, you know, we took the kids with us to, on the Denver road trip to see everybody. Ooh. And we brought them to the meetup. That was great. Uh, and we had a listener, Mike, show up. And uh, really great guy. Like, you know, the kind of listener, like, it's just, it's so cool to meet people like listener Mike. And he turned out to be a Cessna pilot. And he also offered to take a bunch of us up for a couple of hours on a scenic tour of Denver in his Cessna. And I got to bring Dylan with me. And, you know, it was a great experience. But I'm not kidding you. If the bigger impression for Dylan might not have been when Carl from System 76 took Dylan around in his Tesla. Dylan's mind was blown by the Tesla. And he got to turn on the fart whoopee cushion settings. And he got to see it in the rainbow road mode. And, I mean, Carl was such a sport. He took, he took both uh, Dylan and Abby out for a spin in his Model 3 and... I, I think that was probably the highlight of Dylan's road trip. <laughs> oh, Carl's awesome. And also, I did not know there was a rainbow road mode. Yeah, just like, yeah, for Mar like Mario Kart. I, no, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, last week, we set a small part of the internet on fire unintentionally. Um, and, you know, this is a tricky one for us because I know I blew it in one way and a big way is... I, I get really caught up in the practical aspect of the situation. Like mm -hmm. we were talking about fair pay and we were talking about that Slack channel that Apple shut down. And I just sort of had this natural reaction of like, yeah, of course Apple did that. Right. And of course, Apple doesn't want you using a company Slack channel to talk about pay. I don't think I did a good job of articulating it from the worker standpoint. So I know I can totally understand <laughs> why people who are dealing with this issue right now at their workplace would get super upset. But I kind of feel like some people, when they got so upset, missed an opportunity to hear this from a business owner's standpoint, mm. which is a valuable perspective, I think, for people who are negotiating better pay to understand. It, it, like when we talked about it last week, I think we were very much thinking about it in the way an Apple executive would think about it. It's a business owner mentality versus a worker mentality. And I think that is actually the core of the conflict. Yeah, it's a hassle and you kind of don't want to deal with it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. For the business owner, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we got nine, I counted, we got nine emails just on this subject. Some were constructive, others were less. And this is what I'm saying. Like, I think maybe an opportunity was missed here. Like, Chris B. wrote that he, he fired up Pocket Cast to hear a usually interesting Coda radio. But what he heard instead was some bizarre far-right extreme political triad sounding like a radio broadcast from the dying days of the Weimar Republic. Employees are actually fully purchased property of their own employer. Anyone who doesn't want to work to the death of the industry is a traitor to the fatherland. Seriously off the rails, guys. Okay, so one, no one mentioned slavery. Like, I just want to, like, if some, like, Chris, I'm sure you're sincere, but I obviously don't think slavery is good. <laughs> right. No, I would not be surprised to hear that. Nor am I a fan of fascist German governments. So my, my point was like, and, and actually there was another email that, that uh, you didn't highlight in the doc here that actually sort of changed my mind. 
right? So I, th- I think I kind of pissed off the folks more. It's funny because like what I preach is not what I practice, right? People who work, you know, at TMB can talk about their salary. It's kind of lame because we all have basically the same salary. We just do it by years of experience. So I do that because I don't want to be accused of like prejudice or whatever. I, I realized like for years I've been talking about how folks, uh, I won't name names, but large consulting companies that you have definitely heard of abuse the H-1B system to the detriment of the H-1B recipients, right? To lower wages on all people. This is something we covered a lot back in the day on the show when it was happening years ago when when Disney, yeah. And I realized that, and someone sent me a nice message pointing out that there is an internal kind of logical inconsistency in my arguments. Ultimately, like you and I have what, like, I, I mean, whatever. Less, I think we both have less than like 10 employees, right? Yeah. So it's not like we're robber barons with like 400 people digging, you know, laying railroad track. We're closer to the worker side of life, particularly me, right? Because I sell development services effectively. Yeah, for sure. I do think it's bad when people, like when Apple and Adobe and Microsoft, or I can't, I don't know if it was Microsoft, but it was definitely Apple and Adobe have a secret agreement to collude to lower wages, right? I think it's bad when companies, I won't say the name, but you can Google it. There was a story about this. Hire H-1B visas explicitly to make them work unpaid overtime and then basically knowing that if they don't do what they want, they'll fire them and that is effectively deporting them. I think that's bad. I think it's bad for the folks getting the visas. It's bad for small companies like mine that have to compete for these consulting jobs but need to pay like reasonable wages. It's bad for you know Americans, British, Indians, anybody trying to get these jobs if these large firms know that they, I mean, excuse the crude, crude language, but they effectively have these folks by the balls because if they lose their job, they get deported. That was my point. Not that we you, like we should not allow immigration, that it's abusive. Let's be honest, too, about what does getting deported mean? It means losing out. It destroys their life. Yeah, on your entire life. Everything you've built up. Imagine you have, you know, your kids are in school here. That's horrible. Yeah. I, my point is if we're going to have the H-1B system, and I've been saying this for years, you can go back to 2014, 2015, the recipients of the H-1B visas must have, and not just in writing, but like actual in practice, the same protections as domestic workers. And it just isn't the case, right? I mean, you could Google it. There's horror stories. I mean, I'll, we'll name one name, right? Because we covered it years ago. When Disney just laid off all their IT people saying that they were redundant, and then a month later, outsourced everything to H-1Bs and to one of these large consulting companies that is notorious for treating their folks like crap. Mm-hmm. Another example is The Verge has the H-1B folks and the contracting folks, not all of them are H-1Bs, but that that company, for the uh, they hire another consulting firm to do their moderation. These people themselves are being mistreated. Yep. My point is, if you're going to have employees, you should treat them well. Right. <laughs> that's that's basically it. Yeah. And I think that is that is an ongoing conversation that if you haven't heard the back catalog, you know, they didn't have all of the context for for your position in the last episode. And I get it. I should have been more eloquent. Right. Like, Well, I mean, neither of us were at our best because it was at a different show time. Uh, I was in a hell state called Tucson. Um, but dude, you're going to get ripped apart by Tucson folks now. I don't know what you're I doing. hope. Bring yeah. it. They can bring it. They live in a they live in a failed hell state, and I'll say it right now. All right, can can, can someone suggest Tucson is a failed hellscape, please? 
The rest of Arizona seemed great, though. Anyways, Drew, our editor, put it really well. He said, you guys are wrong about this in the most Florida way possible. Fair pay is a huge issue in the country right now. It's less of an issue in Europe because they have actual laws to protect workers. In contrast to this, the dystopian nightmare we call workers' rights, in air quotes, he says, with a wink and a nod, heavily implies that the right is that you can work, not that you have rights while being a laborer. He writes, case in point, Colorado passed a law recently requiring companies to post a real, legitimate pay scale on job postings. Some companies decided they would rather not have employees in Colorado rather than let people know what others are paid. Some tried to skirt around it by posting something like a dollar to one million. And then, of course, they got smacked down with fines. That's amazing. Uh, he, uh, I have a story about that I'll share in a second. He finishes, though, with, the employees at Apple should have known better than to have a chat room within a company property. Apple had every right to shut that down. But when they start telling the employees that they can't have those conversations inside or even outside the company, they're becoming thought police. You don't pay these people while they're off the clock and off property. Get the fuck out of here trying to tell them what they can and can't talk about on their own time. Sincerely, your editor. P.S. Don't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you nailed it. No, yeah, I mean. The, the, so the pay scale thing is, I so I worked at a bank forever ago, lifetime ago, and every position in the company, in the HR book, had a pay scale that was posted, like, you know, um, IT was probably thirty-five to sixty thousand, or something, or maybe forty thousand to sixty thousand. And you knew that if you had the IT position one, you would get something in that range, and you knew everyone else in that position was making that pay. And that was true for many, many years until it wasn't when they wanted to promote me to sort of incentivize me, but it was above what was public in the pay scale, so they. The one time they just paid me more and didn't say anything about it. But then when it came time the next year to do something else again, they just created a whole new position and decided that had a new pay scale. And they just created it spontaneously and said, well, now you're a server technician level three. Oh, okay. Where did one and two go? Um, and they just sort of invented new pay scales. But I thought when the system was working properly, it was kind of nice to know that if I wanted to jump over to, say, working in, in the branch side of the bank, these were the salary ranges I could expect. And if I shot for top tier, I could expect to make as much as this. And that worked. But that's something that company chose to implement. And I wish we could utilize technology in a way to, to create something like Glassdoor, but better and decentralized that also helps us discuss pay in a way that would actually be appealing to Americans who are culturally awkward about this. Uh, and it's a real hard spot for me. This whole thing, and I think it affected the way I talked about it last week. Honestly, at this point, it's a joke. But let's say somehow <laughs> I ended up making $300,000 a year doing this job, which I, I, I can't imagine how that would ever happen. <laughs> but um, let's just say like that would be my high end of what I could ever expect for success is $300,000. It's not, a, you know, it's not in the grand scheme of things. It's not a ton of money for media. But I'd be <laughs> I'd be over the moon to make that much money a year. and. If that ever went public, it would significantly damage my brand. Back in the day when I worked in IT and I was making a good chunk of change because I was charging $120 an hour for my clients, and I also had podcast revenue coming in from sponsors, it became scandalous in the community when I bought an Oryx. Like, Chris, is, Chris just spent $3,000 on a laptop. He must be making so much money. Well, I'm not going to listen anymore. You know, like, there is a big part of the Linux community 
that responds extremely negatively to financial success. And it's not all of them, and I don't even think it's the majority, but in a weird way for me, if I were ever public with how much money I make, because ultimately it's probably going to be more than somebody in the audience, even if it's not very much, they, they, it, it, it creates this brand problem for me. And it's the craziest thing. And I think, I don't think this is true. Like in other communities, you know, uh, you have YouTubers who kind of flaunt giving away money. Uh, you got, you got like ATP, the accidental tech podcast, where they literally brag about the thousands of dollars they spend on monitors and stands. And they, they, they each make over five grand a month per episode, apparently. Right. Like they've, yeah. they've mentioned it on the air. It's probably more since that membership of theirs because they have a ton of members. Like it's, it's like, you know, our members are like essential to keeping the show on there. Their members are helping them buy Apple watches. It's a whole other scale of money they're making. And Tesla's right. And, and actually a, all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, if you listen to the show, it's clear that money isn't a problem and they also have other alternative revenue. I mean, they're making good money and it's not considered a bad thing. And I think it's because the Apple community, you know, <laughs> It's sort of a high, a high spend bar to even get in. And so it's just normal. But in, in the audience that I serve, there is a portion that would be very, would be very upset to hear, oh, he makes 300,000, which by the way, I got to be clear, I make nowhere near that. Not even close. But it would, be, even though for me, it would be like the success of my career, uh, of this particular trajectory, to make that much, it'd be like, it'd be like a life goal for me to achieve that. And I, you know, I would imagine life would be great for a good portion of the audience. They would be angered and I, I think they'd probably tune out. And so when I think about wage transparency and talking about how much I make, it's a scary topic for me because it has so many negative, negative ramifications for me. So I, that also influences how I think about this because not only do I own a business and not only have I done a lot of hiring where depending on when I hire somebody, and what's going on in the market and what the needs of the business are, if they come in at the right time with the right ask, they're going to make more than somebody that came in a couple of years ago when the market dynamics weren't the same. And it's an unfortunate reality. And I've seen it play out in multiple companies, but it's like there's a lot of things that influence how much a business is willing to pay for somebody at what time. And every now and then, like, you're the right person with the right skill set, with the right ask, and the business says yes. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're a better coder than somebody else already on staff or, or, or a better tech or, or a better podcast or whatever it is. But it means that they, they bought at the right time, essentially, you know, and uh, that also can when, when employees find out about that disparity, it can create a lot of issues inside the team. I don't necessarily know what the answer is there. And I do feel like workers should have access to as many tools as possible to negotiate with these large, especially these monstrously large companies, because the employers and the businesses have all the tools in the world from all kinds of tactics to literal tools, to personnel, they have to, to lawyers, they have all the tools in the world. So I do think workers need access to more information and more resources, but I just don't know what the answer is. And I, and I think it's a more complicated problem than we really gave it credit for. Yeah, I think it gets messy to the smaller, like it's very easy to say that like Apple should not quote interfere with organizing or whatever. But, you know, if you have a company of like five people and everybody's making roughly the same amount of money and the company, like all small companies, is always on the edge of life and death, there's just not like enough fat there to have this massive drain of like constantly fighting with you, the employer. I don't know. I, I, I mean, one, I, I 
I don't know of another place. I know in Florida, if you're small enough, a lot of these things don't really apply. But I feel like there's just a fundamental difference between the huge tech companies and like JB and TMB, right? It, it just seems... Oh, yeah. Like you and I are not making 300 times more than our, our employees, right? It, it just... <laughs> and, you know, think about it in terms of employee disparity. I thought about this when we were getting those emails and we, you know, what we didn't talk about with Apple is imagine being an employee there, right? Maybe you're like responsible for some subsystem in iOS or some component of the desktop or whatever. You now work for a company that's willing to pay like $30 million to do Ted Lasso and pay those to pay the staff of the Apple TV arm millions of dollars in payroll millions, right? Like the difference now between what a developer makes and what Jennifer Aniston makes, who are both now employees for Apple, is gross. And that is a whole new level of disparity. And I don't, I know it's different in markets and all that, but like at the end of the day, if you're an employee at Apple, that's a reality for you now. And that doesn't sit well with me. Like I'm thinking about it, like in my exact case, the difference between me and my current lowest paid like employee, like full-time employee, is I think like four or five dollars an hour. It's a lot narrower in our in our area. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's kind of crazy. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show, of course. Linode started in 2003 as one of the very first companies in cloud computing. I got hip to them about two years ago, and what I realized is for 18 years they have been focused on being the best in this area. They haven't been led astray and done a million different little strange things. Instead, they have focused on making cloud computing accessible, simple, and affordable to all. And if you are starting a project, Linode is a fantastic way to go. And they have systems in place that will help take care of your box, like with snapshots and backups if you ever need them. And they make it really easy to get started. I frequently deploy a Debian box with Docker pre-installed. But for example, you could just one-click deploy NextCloud or maybe Jitsi if you want to replace Zoom. They have a lot of just hit a button, deploy the app and get started type stuff. But they also make it really simple for you to go the DIY route if that's what you prefer. That's why that $100 credit is so great. Plus, you get access to their S3 compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, VLAN support, a powerful DNS manager, and really great 24-7 customer support. Linode's always making an investment in their infrastructure. Their high-end CPU boxes have AMD Epic processors. They have super fast SSDs. They are their own ISP, so their network connection is fantastic, and they have 11 data centers around the world. I mean, it really just doesn't get any better than that. While I was while I was on our Jupiter Colony reunion road trip, it was Linode that kept the lights on here. In fact, my on-premises server went down and I ended up having to shift all of my workload to the Linode instances that I had set up before the trip. And that kind of stuff is so great too, because you can use Linode as part of like a multi-cloud strategy. Maybe you have multiple cloud providers, you want to spread out some risk. Maybe you have on-premises and you want to augment that with a cloud option like I did. Linode is super flexible in that way. And you could run your entire infrastructure up there because their pricing is 30 to 50% cheaper than the major duopoly cloud providers out there. So go get started and get $100 60-day credit by going to linode.com slash coder. You get that $100 and you support the Coder Radio program. You make it possible for us to keep going. That's linode.com slash coder. Apple today, as we record, so probably two days as you're listening to this, has released iOS 15 and iPad OS 15, along with the watch stuff and I assume the Apple TV stuff. I wanted to note it since it's happening today on the show. 
And there is actually one real significant feature in here that I think is decent. But uh, you have any off the top of your head thoughts about the iOS 15 release? None. I'm actually curious what the feature you uh, you think is important is. Well, you know what? I'll say this. I've been using the beta the entire summer on the iPad. Really? Mm-hmm. Way better on the iPad. They just did one thing, and it was really simple, is they just made the, uh, the multitasking discoverable. They put little tabs in stuff and gave you clues of how to use it. It's relatively the same, but it's so, so much better now. There's a feature in there that I haven't played a lot with because I've really been waiting for it to land on the phone. And I think it's a great example of, A, the kind of area where Apple was really, really behind for essentially all of iOS, and then just sort of leapfrogs with a feature set that it looks really, really competitive. And then the other thing about it, so B, is it it sort of really checks that sync across to all your boxes and and iCloudify this for everything in the ecosystem the way only Apple really does these days. So I'm talking about here is the focus feature. So at a high level, the idea behind the focus feature is it's like do not disturb, but way more turned up to 11. So when you want to focus on a particular task, like say maybe you're recording a podcast or you're flying a damn drone or you're trying to sleep or read a book or play a game on your device, you can enable that particular focus to silence notifications from specific apps or people. You can also at the same time trigger automations and shortcuts and rearrange your home screen for that particular focus. So it's do not disturb on steroids where it touches all this other stuff. And then you can sync those different focuses. So like I'll have one for podcasting. I'll have one for driving. You can sync these different focuses across all your devices, everything that's either on the latest version of the latest Apple OS. But for me, the biggest thing is as you're using it, you can start to add people or notifications to the focus mode or remove them. It gives you a surprising amount of customizations where I could say, allow notifications from Mike and Wes, but nobody else. And it will actually recognize you, assuming that the developers are using the new APIs, it'll recognize you across chat services. So iMessage, Slack, Telegram, WhatsApp. If it's using the new API, it'll know it's you regardless of the chat application they're using. So I can just put you in there as a contact And that means any app you want to use, you can break through. And I can specifically allow or deny apps. So I can say in the case of like when I'm flying the drone, this has actually been a, this has been a really frustrating problem is because the universe hates me, just like when I'm podcasting, when I put my drone up in the air, that's when I start getting all the push notifications, you know, motion notifications, Slack notifications, everything. And um, the horrible thing about iOS is you can be in do not disturb mode, but if you allow banner notifications and you have your screen on, you will get those notifications. And if you have an iPhone mini and you're flying a drone, those banner notifications cover up a significant part of the screen you're using to fly the thing. So I can literally be in mid-flight and not able to see where I'm flying because of these damn notifications. Or I can be recording a podcast and they break through. So with these focus modes, I choose the task that I'm doing And I will have only certain allowed applications through and I will have custom home screen. So I don't even have to see the badges of the other apps. And then they're going to do some things. We'll see how it works, like some contextual suggestions based on, you know, things that it's observed, which they seem to get right about 30% of the time. But the 30% they get right is pretty clever. And in terms of iMessage, which is what my family uses for better or for worse, it'll let them know. I'm in a focus mode and not seeing their notifications. 
And then there's also some way for them to say, this is urgent, break through the focus mode and let him know I need him to see this notification. Uh, sort of like Slack can do. And I think that is going to be a feature that genuinely changes how I use my devices and how, how I'm interrupted, which is a rough, interruptions are rough for me. And it also is one of those stupid, it's a small, stupid little thing, but it makes me go, huh. You know, if I had a M1X Mac with Monterey, it would get silenced when I silence my phone or my watch. Like they all, the iPad, the Mac, the theoretical Mac that doesn't exist, they all would get it. And that is extremely appealing to me. It's a small, stupid thing, but yet huge for me personally. Um, <laughs> really? I didn't sell you? I thought that was a pretty good explanation. <laughs> no, because I, because I can already hear the complaints. Like, you monster. Well, I can already hear like the family tech support I'm going to have to do when someone mistakenly puts some app on a block thinking, you know, like, oh, come on, you know this, Chris. You get all kinds of crazy shit calls from relatives, right? Like, yeah. you're the tech guy in the family. Like, I've seen, all right, Ma, I love you. And also, I, I understand you love collective bargaining, and I'm very sorry. But, like, the woman can destroy an Apple TV in ways that I didn't know were possible. Really? An Apple? That does seem like the impossible. So, like, giving more settings to my relatives, it's just, there's a reason I make them buy all iPhones. <laughs> it was to avoid this. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, you know what I want them to do? Nothing. I don't even, uh, again, sorry, Ma. But, like, she discovered how to turn her phone off. She's a very smart person, but she thought off was silent. This is years ago when like smartphones were new. And that was just a problem, right? Now, granted, we're talking the iPhone. Uh, oh, God. What was the first one on Verizon? Was it the 4 or the 3GS? It must have been the, uh, I want to say 4, but I don't know. It felt like it took forever for Verizon to get it. Yeah, well, there was a setting you could like change what the button did from like off to silent or something or sleep to silent. Yeah. Okay. It was sleep to silent. You could change it. And she changed it and she just kept turning her phone on silent and then being mad that her phone wouldn't ring. <laughs> and like, my opinion is that setting should not exist. Right. Like I'm just like, no. So I don't love that. What you just described, it took you at least two and a half minutes to describe <laughs> on a technical podcast. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. You're right. It does seem a little complicated. Yeah, it does. But it's like, it is the new do not disturb. And I think they've just taken do not disturb and they've made it a focus now. I think it's way better than it was. The notification system seems uniquely improved. In fact, it's got other things in there too now, like silently collecting notifications and just tucking them away in a tray until you want them instead of like blasting them in your face. There's a lot of things like that that I think are a nice step up. But you're right, it is complicated. You know, they're not doing a lot this year. I think Apple is paying the COVID tax this year because let's be honest, the iPhone event was kind of a snoozer. It was a dud, but okay, but, but, but they're not doing a lot, but they're doing more than their nearest peer competitors for sure. Unless you care about folding phones. And I just want to say at the rate I destroy hardware, can you imagine a folding phone? Would I even get it out of the box? If I could do it right, I wouldn't. I, I kind of liked the clamshell phones, but I don't think I want something that thick in my pocket. No, I'm talking the uh, the dual, you know, the what do they call it? The Samsung? Uh, the, yeah, the, fa the things that unfold into a tablet, basically. It's too yeah, much. I can't remember the name, but someone will will have it in the comments. Yeah. What are your thoughts, though, on, uh, on, um, on the 13? Did you order one? Did I ask you last week? No, but you and I are iPad mini brothers, apparently. No, I don't have one. I thought you ordered one. Mm -mm, no, I got a 13 Max Pro. Really? Yeah. I do like the Mini. I think that's a good iPad, but no, I don't have one. 
I have the I, what you're thinking of is I have the iPhone Mini. You have the iPhone Mini. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah, and it's been a disaster for me. It's just been a dumpster. So I like to read. Uh, in fact, we're gonna have a review of it if I ever finish it. Like you know, Manning presses like technical books. Oh yeah. And I find that on the regular Kindle, they're kind of garbage because you know you don't get the syntax highlighting or whatever. Mm-hmm. I cannot express how painful dropping an iPad Pro on my face is. With the keyboard attached. Oh yeah, yeah. When you're sitting there reading in bed, and yeah, and you start falling asleep, and you just like yep. knock your own ass out. Yeah. So the mini, and also my son has discovered Cut the Rope. He's a little late. Let's not be mean to the five year old. Uh, and Fruit Ninja. So he is enjoying the best of 2014 mobile games. Right. Hey, now. you know what you got to do next is get him on uh, Angry Birds. I mean, you know what? The classics are the classics. How much money those those Rovio guys made on Angry Birds? Seriously, that's. Not anymore, dude. You know, it's a, they got a version in the arcade now, and it's all just like, you know, all built in. No, no in-app purchases or anything. Yeah, that's that's it's wild. They're all going for that subscription revenue now. Hey, you get down to fifteen percent Apple tax after a year. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. Um, yeah, I got the I I got the big one. That's probably I'm probably gonna. I'm also I also think live text is a decent feature, where you can select the text in photos in like a screenshot or in Safari or. I've actually already used that a couple of times um, on the iPad. So we'll see. Anyways, I just wanted to note that it's here and um, we're aware of it. And I think focus mode is probably the only thing that's really going to change my productivity with these devices. And I think it is a nice little note of, of system-wide setting syncing that Apple could do. They could do a lot more of that if you think about it. There's a lot more things they could sync across all these devices. And if they got it right and didn't screw it up, I, that's a pretty compelling feature set for me. I just want to remind all iOS developers of the iCloud API yeah. and syncing, and if they got it right. Okay. Datadog.com slash Coder Radio. Go there and see why Datadog is the top monitoring platform. And Datadog is the monitoring and security platform for developers, security professionals, and ops teams in the cloud age. You can unify your metrics, your traces, and your logs all in one place. And you troubleshoot issues faster and break down silos between teams and communicate better than ever. Datadog lets you create real-time dashboards for over 450 integrations in minutes. And you can easily pivot from like a high-level overview of your entire environment to just a granular visualization of metrics and events. You see, Datadog offers infrastructure monitoring, security monitoring, real-time user monitoring, application performance monitoring, and more all in one place with beautiful dashboards that you just got to go see for yourself. That's why I recommend you get started today with a free trial at datadog.com slash radio. You can see why thousands of companies trust Datadog with their monitoring solution. And so many Coda Radio listeners are now using Datadog. So go to datadog.com slash radio, start a free trial. And if you create one dashboard, Datadog is going to send you a free t-shirt too. Free swag to try out Datadog and see their beautiful dashboards and unify your entire platform and communicate between teams. It's a great tool and you got to check it out. Datadog.com slash Coder Radio. Let me tell you about an experimental operating system that Microsoft has developed. It's called Singularity and it's designed to eliminate some of the shortcomings of existing operating systems, such as the general security vulnerabilities, Failures and crashes due to drivers, extensions, add-ons, and of course, fail- crashes due to unexpected interaction between apps, and an overall lack of performance and robustness. So they are aiming big here. Their strategy is to utilize a safe programming language, no more of C's shenanigans, as Microsoft says, 
They will use verification tools, impose constraints that will make verification easier, and they have a new architecture and design that they think is tops. Do I have your attention? Are you impressed? No, of course not. <laughs> yeah, I should know better. Uh, it's, it's a very fascinating theoretical uh, study that they did. There's just one little catch. The last release was in November of 2008. <laughs> it's just an old, it was an experiment about 18 years ago they thought would make for a better platform for the long run. Kind of like Google's Fuchsia today. That's a, this first thing I thought of when I saw this is this makes me think of what Google is doing right now with Fuchsia. Okay. I mean, first of all, what, is a, what does this say for programming language? Are they just saying they're doing Rust? Because, you know, that's great for the hashtags on Twitter. Well, there was no Rust 18 years ago, was there? So it's C-sharp. It's Longhorn 2.0. Yeah, maybe. They actually do have it up on GitHub now, so, so one could go sniff around. I wonder if this kind of thing, like these rich companies, you know, they do this kind of stuff, these skunkworks projects, whole new operating system, and then the business sort of just says, nah, knock it off. We got a good thing going over here. We're not going to reinvest in all this. Because like what ultimately is going to happen to Fuchsia is either Google will slowly replace Android and roll it out to first all its IoT devices and then its mobile devices and then put it on Chromebooks eventually. Or in a few years, they're just going to give up. They're, it's just going to kind of wind down a little bit because the Linux kernel or whatever that is that they need changed will adopt what they're doing and the business will say, ah, good enough. I mean, it just seems to happen over and over. It is C-sharp. Oh, you and <laughs> Of course it is. Oh, yes. Well, I wouldn't expect anything else from them. You know, this is like, this is their dream. And I have a similar dream. Or I have a dream. I think it's not similar. But I have a dream that, like, I keep going back to that keeps, like, not working. And I respect them for not giving up. Is that a .vbs file? Get out. Oh, it's got to be, right? I mean, come on. <gasps> Get out. A VB. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right, you know what? This repo, we were gonna we need to put this in the chat room. This repo's worth a look. There's some stuff happening yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I'll put it in the show notes too. There's also a PDF paper they wrote, which I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's pretty great. Singularity. How about that? And you know, it's the new Microsoft, so of course they put it up on GitHub. Wait, what's iron? Hang on. The, the PowerShell. There it is. All right, wait, 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 wait. No way, really? Oh yeah, there's a lot. Oh, 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 but it's mostly C, yep, C sharp. Sure, of course. Using common system collections and link queue. Man, this is wild because this is what they were saying back in 2008. This is long. Software hard. runs on a platform that has evolved over the past 40 years and is increasingly showing its age. The platform is a vast collection of code, operating systems, programming languages, compilers, libraries, runtimes, middleware, etc. And they're calling that. Uh, super old and this is 18 years ago <laughs> i just want to say i'm looking at some of this code granted this is my cursory but like this is actually pretty good like if you want to learn c sharp and like hardcore c sharp not like you know you're just doing xamarin or whatever um i would check this out there's some uh like they're doing a lot of like bitwise opera they're doing some good stuff here like the, yeah 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 well their whole idea was if we were going to start today and learn and use everything we've learned, how could we use that to create the basis for, quote, more dependable system and application software? Singularity exploits advances in programming languages and tools to create an environment which software is more likely to be built correctly, program behavior is easier to verify, and runtime failures can be contained. This is fascinating. I would actually suggest that, like, especially our newer developers uh, or folks wanting to get into it, 
who write us all the time. If you are at all interested in the .NET world, or even, you know what, no, even just like programming patterns, this repo is actually, this is this is beefy. I was going to make fun of it, but... Uh, and then in the show notes, I'll have a link to a story from a developer who uh, decided to start taking phone support after never doing it. Oof. He only opened it up in Japanese because he's primarily... Japanese and he had a Japanese phone number. I would hope he speaks Japanese if he's only doing Japanese phone support. But of course, you know, it's kind of an interesting experiment because he says most of them were polite. He says probably mostly because of Japanese culture. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I was just saying, yeah. But he did get a few upset calls. And this was the key insight that I thought it almost, it almost made me go like, maybe I should like have a phone line for like a week that people could call. He says, you can detect critical parts of your product. There are times when there's large problems, that's obvious, but there's small little things that the phone calls would expose to him that he realized everybody must be hitting and that he should probably fix. And he says, of course, it was also an opportunity to improve listening skills and get a better understanding of what clients explain they want and what they actually want. But the insight that he essentially was getting bug reports, even though they didn't realize that's what they were, gave him critical feedback of a data point he was missing when the application was in the field without phone support. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, and he didn't make a big deal about it. I think he just put it like in the about page or something like that. But sure enough, he'd get calls. The other thing he said is that if he went a while in between updates in the past, people would just kind of assume the project was dead. Yes. But now people would call him and say, hey, are you still maintaining this? And he could say yes. And then he'd have a sale. I don't love the fact that most business communications have moved to like Slack or email or like, you know, Trello in my case, because we're... TMB uses Trello Enterprise. It's horrible. Sorry, guys. I can just say, like, if there is a problem, which software always has bugs, there's always a problem. People are much, much, much nicer on the phone than they are on email. Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, it, it's easier to get a detailed bug report when you're actually on the phone with someone, or better yet, in person with them. Not only are they nicer usually, but they're more generous. They'll be, they'd be willing to ch test more things and do more steps for you over the phone. Right, to walk you through it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely found that like i mean i mean i have a number size this equation right but like dms or emails you get at like 2 a.m are probably like you need to take them with some charity because they're not going to be good you know customers get frustrated i guess my thing is if i had a consumer facing app like i used to a code journal if I opened like just like i guess the phone line can't be my phone line it has to be like some kind of view v over ip solution because don't you think you'd just get too much, like, random questions? This seemed like his situation's best-case scenario, where he put it in the about version for the Japanese version of the application, so it's very specific. I'd be willing to re-release CodeJournal in Japan only and have phone support. <laughs> I know, they sound great over there. I mean, I, I, I can't translate the text into Japanese because I don't know. Maybe Japanese. if you have Google Assistant answer. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I can't compile it anymore, but hey, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's that problem. I've always liked the idea of hearing from the audience. That's why I went on that road trip. Uh, for me, I know implicitly with, with, without any doubt that going out there and meeting the audience gives me a much better understanding of who these people actually are than what I get through social media and chat rooms. And I say that all the time, so not a big surprise there, but you, it's like I, I have to drill the point home because if people aren't frequently experiencing that difference, it's, I think our, our brains sort of normalize it out and we sort of forget 
how low bandwidth these relationships truly are. Mm. And we, we don't really have a brain that's adapted for a low bandwidth style of communication. So we put a lot into that communication that isn't there because that's how our brains are built. That when you're talking to somebody and you see their facial expressions and you see how they're holding themselves and you also just sort of humanize them more. Like those emails we got, a lot of times if you respond to them and say, you know, hey, so-and-so and such and such, and I'm sorry, or this, like they realize, oh yeah, right. No, man, I'm sorry. I forgot. I forgot actually you're a person. Right. You're not in fact an, a Nazi robot, for instance. Right. And I, I probably, I've probably heard that a thousand times in emails uh, when I respond. But I, but I, I, I will count you a little bit. Like remember way back in the day, gather around children in 2012 when I used to respond to YouTube comments. Now I don't. Yeah. Because there are people who are just trolls, right? Who are just going to like. Yes. You know, I, and I feel bad because I've been on both sides of this, especially like, I'd like to say when I was younger, but not that much younger. Uh, it's very easy when you're like staring at a Slack channel or you're staring at a Telegram or whatever to forget that whatever thing the person did that annoyed you, they are a person who probably has their own stuff going on. Right. How do you know, right? Like, you can use me. Maybe they're going through like an awful divorce, right? And it's just like, whatever. They're a little messed up. Maybe, yeah. hell, maybe they got an offender bender, right? Or some health issue. Or, or some health issue, yeah. We, we've both had pretty severe health issues over the course of the show. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. It, it, it's something I try to do. I would recommend, especially as more of these communications become these asynchronous messaging services. Right, this is clearly the direction we're going, better or worse. You gotta remember that like the person who, might just have like, especially in the age of COVID, right? Everybody's kids are home. Like people are tired. You know, people are just run down. You, you got to give a little bit of charity. And I, I'm trying to do it. I'm not perfect as it, at it, as Chris knows. But you got to, you got to try. Yeah, well said. Unless, unless they are the maintainers of the GNOME project. Then just wild out at them. I'm joking. I love you guys. Sorry. They have been getting it this week. Tough week, guys, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I tell you. But you know what? Uh, I'm more appreciative than ever for our members. Our Coder QA team out there is amazing, and we are grateful for your support. You can join us and get access to all the previous Coderlies and the future Coderlies. And, of course, you get a limited ad feed, which we'll have some upgrades soon. You're going to get um, the also warm and fuzzies of supporting the show over at CoderQA.co. CoderQA.co. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you'd like to send folks this week? Uh, follow me uh, at Twitter, at Dumanuko. I am two weeks away from shipping, and I haven't slept much. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Remember what I said, take charity? You never know what somebody's going through. They could be about to ship. <laughs> You're going to have to have a lot of charity with me in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. The hell I was going through, I realized uh, I shouldn't have done shows that last week. Like the last two weeks, you could argue, but that last week where I was like trapped in Tucson, and it was a hundred and something degrees every day in the RV. And I mean, like, I just shouldn't have done the shows, but I, I didn't plan to get stranded somewhere. So I didn't have any backup plans. You know, the other thing about the behind the scenes about last week's episode too, which people don't know is if you listen to it, Drew does such a great job, but we had all kinds of like crazy, strange drifting latency and yep. it, it like, oh God, it was so brutal and so awful. I shouldn't have done the shows, but. Uh, I think my, my son was whiling out in the other room, right? Like, I think <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, was just, yeah. it was, we should have just said uh, sorry, but. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You know what? Like, you know what big podcast networks do? Like, you know, that Roman Mars guy, 
He just uh, he features another show and says, uh, "I would love to feature Stoke this week." Yeah, this week we're uh, featuring something from our catalog, and uh, you know, and then they just roll it, and that's that's how they get away with it. I, I just want to say, Stoked, email him. Hey, you know what? Stoked was great. It was fun. I liked Stoked. I don't know why Stoked went away. Well, I do know why, but well, because Star Trek Online got a little weird. For those of you who don't know, which would be everybody, <laughs> I used to do a podcast way back in the day. It was a video podcast with some decent production values. I'll add, it was awesome. Yeah, and because uh, I'm such a big Star Trek guy, and we we got early access to this Star Trek Online game, which is still going to this day. But we got I call that Fisher privilege. We were very early. Um, we got very early access because they were here in an event in Seattle. And the guy that ended up r- later on running the project for a while, but the guy that was working there let us film for a bit before he shut us down like he was supposed to. And so we had solid few minutes worth of gameplay footage on YouTube. And from there, we just sort of took off because we became like this rumor house for the game before it launched. And we started a podcast. And it was a lot of fun for a long time until um, until it wasn't. The game got bought. Also, my co-host got acquired by the company that we were covering because he really knew his stuff. So then, you know, we had to shut it down and focus on other things. And that probably was for the best, you know. Isn't it gone now, though? The game? Yeah. yeah. No, it's still going. I don't know how many. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's still going. It's free to play now, too. Uh, Of course Mm -hmm. it is. Star Trek Online. All right. Well, well, I think we need to end the show because I know where I'm going. Oh, Windows only? (laughs) Never mind. It does work under wine. It does. Also on GeForce Now streaming. Ooh. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Chris LES. The show is at Coda Radio Show. And the whole podcast network is at Jupiter Signal. You know what? Links to what we talked about today can all be found on our website. We have a webpage with links at coder.show slash 432. 432. How about that? You'll also find our contact form over there, our RSS feed where you can subscribe, all of that. Your feedback is a big part of the show, so please do use that contact form usually makes up a good bulk of the show, so we appreciate it. And you can always join us live on a Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>